ordinary looking containers hold the horrors of Hamas. Terrifying proof of the brutality that was unleashed on October 7th. The little bag that you see right here is the body of a child. That's what it sounded like when Israel's military invited foreign journalists to visit the site of the official morgue at the Shura army base in Ramla last week. As you can hear, what struck the Indian correspondent was seeing the refrigerated cargo containers filled with shelves and shelves of body bags containing the as-yet-unidentified remains of hundreds of Israeli victims from the October 7th Hamas massacre. It's a sight that ex-Montrealer Joy Frankel also can't get out of her mind. Since the attack, she spends a lot of time there, in her professional capacity as a social worker, called in to support grieving Israeli families, including many who've been waiting over 20 days now for word and a positive ID about their missing loved ones' remains. Frankel usually works with seniors in the Municipal Health Department of Ramat Gan, but this task has been tougher than anything she's had to do since she graduated from McGill University and moved to Israel more than 25 years ago. Frankel goes along with the Army notification team as they carry out the dreaded knock on the door to break the news to victims' relatives, in the case when it's an IDF soldier who was killed. But at the morgue itself, she's also there to support bereaved families when they have to come and identify the remains. And that means she's personally seen the results of Hamas's indescribable cruelty and the condition of some of the bodies, or what's left of them. I am a spiritual person, and maybe it's the spirituality in me that that made me come forward and, and to do all of this work. And really, we're all involved in charity, uh, to the charity of loving kindness. And, you know, what a mitzvah is, is something that you do that, that won't be returned. And especially the chesed shel emet, when you're working with people that were killed, there's no way for them to return that act. So it's a, it's the biggest mitzvah um, that there is. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, October 26th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. This past week, the CJN Daily has been profiling Canadians who are making a difference as volunteers on the ground in Israel during the war with Hamas. And today, you'll meet Joy Frankel. She moved to Israel from Chamonix Laval, north of Montreal. She's married with two sons there, and both have done army service, although they are back home at the moment to her great relief. When she isn't supporting the families of the 1,300 murdered Israelis and those still waiting for news, She goes on her own time and visits the families of the hostages. I spoke to her from her office in Ramat Gan, and just a warning, a small part of our conversation has things that some listeners could find distressing. Thank you for having me, Ellen. It's good to meet you. Thank you for making time for us. We're speaking, uh, you're in the middle of your day. You're a social worker working on a very um, holy mission, I have to say partly to speak to kidnapped hostages family as well as bereaved families. So before we get into, you know, what you're doing every day, day to day, we need to tell our audience your kind of yichas, how you, your connections to Canada. Okay. So I made Aliyah in January 1996, and I've been living in Israel ever since. I grew up in a Zionistic house I grew up with the love of Israel in my home, and two of three of uh, siblings made Aliyah to Israel. Oh. Um, 
yeah, so my parents uh, aren't aren't alive anymore. Uh, my dream was to have children in Israel uh, and for them to serve in the IDF, and they did. Um, I was trained in Montreal as a social worker and finished my master's degree at McGill University, uh, made Aliyah, and have been working as a social worker in Israel ever since. Um, and uh, working right now with the elderly, but during this whole uh, war and genocide, it's not just been working with the elderly. I've been doing a lot of uh, different kinds of work right now. And do you just sign up for this or you, they ask you, how did this um, volunteer stuff come about? Well, as soon as the war broke out on Saturday, Saturday night already, they were looking for people to uh, work at Shula, which is a military base where all of the bodies were being shipped. They needed uh, people to help identify the uh, murdered victims and to accompany their parents to identify their loved ones. So that was the first thing that I did. Saturday night, I already started to volunteer for that. Sunday morning, I was already at the base. In previous wars, were you called upon to do certain or previous actions? You know, what 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 have you done before compared to this? Okay, so in previous wars, no, everything stayed at the municipal level, basically. Uh, but I did take part in two other humanitarian uh, missions. One was in Ghana, and one was during uh, Hurricane Dorian in Bahamas. And likewise, they were looking for people, English-speaking professionals, um, who had experience with uh, crisis and trauma, who could go over and do the work. And uh, so I had my experience from there, too. But it was different because it wasn't people that you grew up with and your children weren't in the front lines. Absolutely. It was different because it was a different country and it was a different culture. Uh, when the war broke out here, it's our home, our families, our brothers, our sisters, our sons, our daughters. Everyone is us. Uh, I'd like to take you back to what you said a moment ago regarding the, the base and your duties. What did you specifically have to do uh, in the aftermath of the uh, hours in October 7th? So we were working as part of the delegation of the Ministry of Health, social workers and psychologists. And we were at the compound. It was, you know, was happening live. Everything bodies, bodies were being brought in. When we first got there, we saw soldiers building caskets. They were building caskets. All you heard were hammers and nails and you, you smelt the wood. Um, and then uh, trucks uh, refrigerated re with refrigeration, they were bringing bodies and bodies and more bodies. There were truckloads of bodies being brought in. Um, we were going to help people identify. Um, there was like a team that was identifying the bodies and our role was to accompany the parents and the families as they were identifying their loved ones. And what that meant was going uh, with uh, a police officer who uh, we received the people. They were waiting outside. There were lots of people waiting outside those gates, Alan. Um, we accompanied them and uh, the body was brought into a special tent. Every uh, tent was meant for one family. Uh, the police and I, we looked at the bodies beforehand so that we could warn the, the family what they were about to see and to let them know that the sites were very, very harsh and they may be very difficult to see and difficult to identify. Did all the parents want to see the child? Or they had to. This was a police sort of, a fit. they had to make the identifications. It wasn't voluntary, right? Everybody 
wanted to see their family members. They didn't care what the body looked like. Everybody wanted us to open that uh, that cover and to see their loved ones. These were all the kids from the from the rave. I'm. I'm it was all people. Wasn't was it just, everybody? You know, well, uh, at Shula, they made a division between soldiers and between civilians. So the soldiers had their own identification team. And we were with people that their children may have been uh, at the rave. It was uh, Kibbutznik. There were a lot of Bedouins also that were there and uh, they came to be identified. How close did you get when they actually opened and saw? Because speaking from uh, we were personal right experience, we were- I want to know, yeah. We were right next to them, holding them, hugging them, right near them um, to make it as personal and humane as possible. Um, And we flowed with the families, whatever they wanted. If they needed to be hugged, we were there for them. If they needed their space, we respected that as well. But you're very in tune with the families. and, And basically what we wanted to do is just honor and respect the families and be there during this most horrible time. Our listeners know my son was killed 13 weeks ago. He was 23. And I've been dealing with this too. And so what you're doing wow. is Chesed Shil Emet because exactly. for, us, for us, what you're doing makes a difference. Because if you have somebody who knows how to handle this and is compassionate, the journey is better than if you have somebody who is rude or brusque or just not says the wrong thing, it could destroy the family's healing because it starts there. And I just want you to know that I understand what you're doing. It's so important work, but it's invisible work. People don't see it uh, outside, but it's the most important, one of the most important jobs. You're not a rabbi and you're not a, you know, uh, uh, you know, spiritual counselor, but I want to ask you about the faith and the religious aspect. Once you're there, what happens? Do the rabbis come? Do the Hebra uh, Kadisha come? Or is that you what you have to do too? So one of the families that I gave the notice to, um, and then I went to her mother that I sent you the picture that I was at her house today. She said, Joy, please tell my mother that it's all from up above. It's all from God. And it was meant to be. So I said to her, I know that that's important for you to understand that but I'm not going to be able to say that to your mother. Um, what would you like me to do for her? What What else can I do for her? And she said, just, just tell her that there was a higher purpose for it. And I said to her, what can I do for you? She said, if I could speak to a rabbi and he could give make some sense of this, then you'll have helped me a lot. And I did. I uh, hooked her up with the the head rabbi of uh, Ramagan, and they they go into every family every funeral because they have a very, very important role. We all look for meaning of this senseless atrocity. Um, so rabbis are very, very important uh, in this whole process. And also at Shula, the second that we finished helping the families identify their loved ones, there's uh, rabbis waiting outside and they ask the families where they want the burial to take place and when. So you did that for how long? A couple of weeks? <laughs> Two days. No, no, doing no. It? I I did it for a couple of days, and then what happened is I'm also on the the family notification team here in Ramagan, which means that when there's somebody uh, murdered or killed, um, we are the team that notifies the families, 
And so that's also highly, highly um, professional and specialized work that we were trained to do. And the notices started coming to Ramat Gan. So I wasn't able to continue at Shula. They needed me in Ramat Gan to do that. And uh, we, along with two army um, representatives and another social worker or psychologist, um, we were the team that uh, goes in and uh, notifies the family. And I'd just like to note how it's done in Israel. Um, when this kind of notification needs to take place, so we have the information of the family before we go in. Uh, we go up and we knock on the door. We don't ring the doorbell. We knock on the door. And in Israel, anybody knows that they get that knock on the door. That's the first That's the first hint. Why don't they um, ring the bell? The people from the army. Wait, wait. Why don't they ring Just the bell? Because why do they knock? You don't ring the bell because when someone rings the bell, you go and answer it and you can say, Hello, I'm so happy to see you. So the uh, protocol is, is that we knock on the door. The first people they see are the representatives of the army. And they're the ones that give the official notice. Um, and they say that their loved one uh, was killed. Usually when we're able to give the information, we give as much information as possible. But because of the heinous crimes and what took place, we have very little information to give the family members. Once the army does the uh, their notification, um, it's when we, we kick in, when we start doing our part of the work to be with the families, to be with them during this notification, to help them get into action um, what they're going to do next. And every family has a different reaction and a different coping mechanism. So you stay there just for that afternoon, that evening, or you're there for exactly. a couple of days, you come back? If no, need- exactly. Once we finish the notification, the family will not see us again. I mean, I left my, my cell phone with them for an emergency but once we do the notification, we step out and another team uh, comes in to start doing the treatment. And so you're still doing that work? Still doing that. And there's also another team that I'm on, and that's the team with the grandparents. Because I work with elderly, another part of my work is to give those notifications to the grandparents also. And I I sent you today, I think you saw it. When yeah, I tell me about that uh, that woman that you, you were with just a few hours ago. Okay, so this woman, um, I met her last week after we notified her uh, that her, her she knew her grandson was killed. And after the shiva, um, I did a home visit to get to know her. And I promised her, of course, that I would be undoing the treatment in this case. Okay, it's not the first notification of skin. I'm working with her. I will be seeing her regularly now. And the picture she had sent was when her grandson won an award for being uh, the best soldier in his whole brigade. Um, and he had showed her that uh, certificate of excellence. And that was the last picture she had taken with him. Can you share his name and age or even his first name? Yeah. His name is Eli and he was 19 years old. He was in the army only for nine months. He was so proud to show his grandmother that certificate of excellence. And after she showed me the picture... She put it face down. She said it was too difficult for her to have that picture in her house. She wanted it, but she doesn't want to see it. So she picks and chooses when she can see that picture. When was he, you said last week was the Shiva. So it took a while for the family to find out that that his body was found. Tell me about the delay and what that is like for families who 
have to wait as opposed to, you know, the person is killed and they get them right away. As you said, at Shura, they knew within hours. It's a different experience. Well, they didn't know. They didn't know within hours. And it's a very, it's an excellent and very, very sensitive question that you're asking, Alan, because the worst thing is not knowing. And in Shula, it took them days or weeks to find the identity of their loved ones. Um, another notice that I had to do last week, like two Fridays ago, um, we were called at 10 o'clock because there was a, a forensic um, identification of one of the soldiers. Um, and we went to her house. And again, the knock on the door, she saw the army at the door and she started to scream and she said, I'm not opening the door. Um, and she refused to open the door and we waited. We waited until she opened the door. Her husband opened the door and then we gave her the notification. Um, once we gave her the notification, she said, no, it's not true. Prove it. It's not true. She said there was already a false ID made on the daughter. She, Prove it, she said. Prove it. Now, because I worked at Shulan, because I have all of the um, contacts that I have, and by the way, we became friends at Shula. All of like, it's unbelievable the the relationships we formed within hours there because we we're all in this catastrophe together. I was able to uh, contact my colleague uh, from Abu Kabil, which is the National Center for Forensic Medicine. And I said, listen, the mother doesn't want to believe that it's her daughter. And within minutes, she was able to get me the forensic ID certificate from the police. And even that, she said, I still don't believe. And I, she had a tattoo of her daughter. And so we asked for the tattoo to be sent also. And then she said, it's not really the tattoo. It was very, very hard for her to accept it. Once she accepted the DNA certificate, and once she accepted that it was the uh, that it was her daughter's tattoo, I felt then that my work was done. She got the notification. She understood it, and uh, we were able to leave. Did you find anybody who was relieved finally to know? I mean, relieved and bereaved at the same time. Ellen, your questions are excellent. And yes, a lot of people were re relieved and bereaved is, is exactly the slogan, relieved and bereaved, because you're waiting and waiting and waiting and you get false things. And then there's all kinds of uh, movies running on social media. They're seeing uh, things on Facebook, um, but not getting the identification. So it's very, very hard for them. And there's two things happening at the same time. We're talking about hope and grief at the same time. We're talking about disbelief and grief. There's things happening at the same time. What do you do when you go home? Because you have, I was told, two sons in service. How do you okay, so one find out where they are and check in with them? Okay, so one of my sons was in reserves and he came home. And my other son is a combat soldier waiting to be called. Um, on the days that my son was in reserves, I mean, it was horrible because I thought he was in one part of the country and I found out that he was in another part of the country. You ask me what I do when I come home. When I come home, I go to volunteer. I go to volunteer because I feel that, there, that I have a calling, that I have work to do. And if I can help in any way, that's what I want to be doing. So two days ago, I felt that it was very important to be with the families of the hostages because they're sitting alone. You talked about not knowing. So these are people that are really not knowing. They're between hope and despair at the same time. 
and they're sitting there alone, not supported. We also talked about, you know, when people know that someone was murdered here, they don't know. And so for me, going to see the hostage, the, the families of the hostages was very, very difficult. I didn't know how to approach them. I didn't know what to say to them. I wanted to be respectful. And I went and I told them that I didn't know what to say and I don't know how to say it, but that I'm here with them. I, I, I made cookies and I came and we both started trying to hug each other. And, and she said, thank you so much. Like, it means so much to me. Like, who would have thought bringing cookies and a hug, but they need to know that we care about them. And uh, that's what Israel is. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're all in this together with a lot, a lot of compassion and love. Can you identify for me the photos that you sent me? The, the military base where you were with the Jeep or whatever that is, What where was, right. that? was that? Okay, that was uh, the military base of Che'elin. And what we did there was, uh, we I after all this death, I wanted to volunteer with, with living and with Neshama. So um, I partnered with a, a volunteer organization that uh, started a charging, uh, a charging truck. So we came and there were 100 chargers for the soldiers. So they were absolutely delighted. And I was with the people that are going to be going in. Um, as soon as our ground, uh, ground forces go in, they're going to be the first ones going in. We were really direct one-on-one with them. There's been a lot of media um, in the last while that they needed proof of the beheadings. They needed proof that this this is like international media that's saying that Hamas didn't do what they did. And you're, you're aware that Israel's IDF had a screening, right, for the international press the other day when they actually showed them some of the footage. I, I haven't looked at it. Right. But did are you able to speak to the conditions of the deceased that you had to show the parents? What do you mean? Can I do I speak to the conditions? Can you so speak about the physical conditions that the parents are seeing that you, you said you have to prepare them for what happened? Because the the, the Israelis uh, I have don't, just only I don't want shown to... it, you know, so. OK, OK, so I'm not going to get into graphic descriptions. I don't think it's healthy and I don't think it's right. Uh, let it suffice that I saw a lot um bodies that you know were charred and ident- unidentified unidentifiable um officers that were shot that you saw gun wounds I, d- I don't want to get into it i don't want to become too graphic but i do want to let you know about the odors and the the amount of people and the sights and the sounds of of being there that were all affected by it yeah, you mentioned um, the sound of the hammering. That was the first sound. And then the other sound that was very, very difficult for me um, were the trucks coming in, um, unloading bodies. They were bodies on top of bodies on top of bodies, and they were put in the back of trucks. And the, to hear the refrigeration of those trucks as the bodies were taken out to be identified, that for me was very, very difficult. Why? Are you a Holocaust survivor's family? Do you have any of that? First, uh, first of all, I am. I'm. Uh, my father was uh, a hidden child, so I'm second generation. Um, and I don't know why no- nobody's calling this a Holocaust, because it's the second Holocaust, and it's a genocide. And I think that we need to call it what it is. It's a genocide that's going on here. 
Um, and with the trucks, yeah, it was just, it was horrible. Like seeing it all, being in the morgue, being in the refrigerated rooms, um, seeing, seeing everything and, and just uh, bearing witness to it all was very, very difficult. I think we'll leave it there. Is there anything else that you want the Canadian audience and the international audience who listens to understand? What is needed? What can, what do you need? What do, what can we do? Okay, so the first thing that's important to me is that people understand that it's a genocide and a holocaust. What's going on here? Nothing less. Anything that people can do right now is appreciated. Whether it's prayers, whether it's small charity. I've been doing a lot of international fundraising for Zaka, which is search and rescue. And also Zaka stands for DVI, a disaster victims identification. They're doing the most sacred work, the hardest work of gathering body, body parts of murdered victims so that they can uh, so that these people can have a Jewish funeral. Um, they're seeing the most difficult things possible. And if I could just end and say, if we're kind to one another, if we're good to one another, and if we love one another, we're going to make this world a better place. Ami Islam Chai, let us all keep our morale high and uh, know that Israel is a very, very resilient country. And I'm going to do as much as I can personally to help with every Israeli's resilience. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Thanks to those of you who have shared names and contacts of other Canadians who are on the ground in Israel helping. Next week, you'll meet some university students from Canada who've decided to remain in Israel during the fighting and volunteer, including one who's tying tzitzis at their yeshiva to give to the IDF soldiers. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. As always, you can reach me at ebessner at thecjn.ca. Special thanks this week to our producer, Zach Kaufman, for the editing.